What a joy to come back to Ephesians chapter 6 today as we look at the second part of the importance of prayer as a piece of the armor of God. Now, I mentioned last week whenever we came to this passage, one of the things that stands out is that a lot of people that have spent time preparing studies and preparing to teach on the armor of God stop somewhere in verse 17. I want to really make sure that we have our heads around the fact that Paul doesn't stop his idea of the armor of God being put on the Christian for the means of um, standing against the schemes of the devil and not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. This idea carries forward into verse 18 and into verse 19. While his allegory, that is, his use of symbolic language, language that represents something that maybe isn't as grounded in this is what you should do, he has to use um, some word pictures to give us some kind of an idea of what he's talking about. In verse 18, the only change that he makes is, well, now he's just going to come out and say it. Christian, if you want to do all of these things, you should be in prayer. I say that because as we move past the allegorical portion of the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, it is important for us to note that verse 18 is not the beginning of a new thought. Of all the analogies that Paul has used, we see him describing the works of God in the life of the Christian, truth as it applies to Revelation, righteousness as it applies to imputation and mortification of sin, readiness as it applies to redemption and reconciliation. All of these things pointing to the work that God is doing in the life of the Christian to prepare them for their Christian life, especially in the face of spiritual warfare. We look at everything that we've gone over the past, what is this, the ninth sermon in this series now? So the past eight weeks, the truth, the righteousness, the readiness, faith, salvation, all of these are things that God has done. Well, it's not important for us to understand these beyond the allegorical sense. Yeah, we should break them apart and we should know how they apply and we should be able to study God's word and, and to separate it into its pieces and teach the whole counsel of God here. But looking at this in terms of application, this is what God does. What do I do? Pray. This is the shift. All of the allegory Paul's presented us is what God is doing in the life of the Christian who is faithful to God. The Christian response is to pray. This morning, as we begin what will be our second installment of the importance of prayer as a form of spiritual warfare, I really have four points. That prayer is personal, that it's providential, that it's purposeful, and it's prescriptive. Let us pray then as we prepare to enter into this study. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and the truth that it gives us. God, I thank you for the reliance that we have upon you in all things. God, I thank you for the confidence and the umption that you give to your people to be able to stand on truth. 
And God, I pray for your provision as we seek to be a people of righteousness that glorify you in all things. God, as we begin our study this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding that is beyond what we are capable of. God, I pray that you would translate the meaning of your inspired words to our hearts. We pray with the psalmist that you might open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the awesome truths found in your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read then from Ephesians chapter 6. Our focus will be on verse 19 today, but I'll begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I know you'll all be very excited to hear that I said I had four points, that prayer is personal, providential. Oops. Per, I'm sorry, personal, providential, purposeful, and prescriptive. I have a bonus point this morning. Before we get into that, we really have to understand what Paul is saying at the end of verse 18 when he says that we should be sup, that prayer is sup, praying for supplication of all the saints or praying for the needs of all of the saints. Last week, if you remember, and if you weren't here last week, that's all right. You can go back online. Our sermons are all published and available. You can listen to everything that I said and um, break it apart and come and ask me all sorts of questions if I said anything in error because it's there on record and I'll have to repent publicly. But in verse 18, we see Paul telling the Christians that they should be praying at all times with all prayer. And so last week we looked at the different kinds of prayers that Christians can pray. We can pray uh, specifically asking God for things. We can pray that God would provide things for other people. We call that intercession. We can pray for supplication, that He would meet our needs. And now He says, pray for supplication for all the saints. As we move through this text, one of the things that stands out in the book of Ephesians as remarkably important is that although our Christian faith is an individual, personal relationship with a Savior, it finds its basis in maturing strength or maturing catalyst in our relationship with the rest of the body of God. We can't take this text out of its context. We have to understand what's going on in the whole book of Ephesians to understand this. Paul is writing to a church. 
He reminds him, this is what you were. This is what you are now. This is whose you are. And he calls them into community with other believers because it's through the edification of the saints, through the gifting of the saints, through the power of the Spirit inside of the saints, that each individual Christian is actually going to be edified. Oh, this is, I can't tell you how countercultural this is. That as a Christian people, we would walk into a room and say, judge me, please. Isn't that the critique that churches all over the world get, that we shouldn't be judgmental, that we should leave judgment up to God? Reading in Ephesians, one of the things that stands out is, I don't come to church just to meet a group of non-judgmental people. I come to church so that I can be judged. Judge me critically. Tell me where I'm in error because I'm not perfect. I'm thankful for the Spirit of God who's able to guide me and edify me and impute righteousness to me for the justification of the cross that makes me right before God. But if that's the end of the story, I'm ready to check out and go home. I've got a ticket in the kingdom of heaven waiting for me. I'm ready to go there. But I don't believe that's the end of the story. I believe God's called His people here for a purpose. I believe He tells us what that purpose is explicitly. I don't have to guess. He wants me here so that I can share the gospel that He has given to me, that He's entrusted to me, that He's entrusted to you. And if we're going to do that effectively, well, I need you to judge me critically. And don't be critical of me. Judge me critically, though. There's a difference. And guess what? In return, if you'll give me the privilege, I'll judge you critically too. I hope that makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But this is ultimately what makes the church a light upon the, the hill. This is what makes the church remarkably different. This is what makes the Christian people a peculiar people. In a world where everyone's crying out, don't judge me, we say, I want more judgment. Because I haven't met one person in this congregation that can judge more harshly than the Almighty God in heaven who sits on the throne and will judge and distinguish rightly when the end of time comes. I promise, if all of you are seeking God and in love come to me to tell me that I've done something wrong, I'm going to praise God and thank God for your willingness to do that. We look at this and we see the picture of the church as something remarkably important. We look at prayer and the application that Paul gives us to pray for the supplication of all the saints, that all things would be, the needs of every saint would be met. And we realize we are a part of something bigger. Paul has opened our eyes in bringing up the concept of spiritual warfare to see that even the things that we can see are only a small glimpse into the realities around us. I mean, think about it. We began in Ephesians chapter 6, somewhere in verse 11. Well, we're not wrestling against, I'm sorry, verse 12. We're not wrestling against the flesh and blood on this earth, but we're wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. When's the last time you turned on, you know, the news channel or you opened up your news app and you saw the cosmic powers are at work again? 
we only get a small glimpse into what's actually happening around us. Paul opens our eyes to this reality that there are cosmic powers at work, that Satan is not some ethereal concept, but that he is a person. Some people get tripped up on this. I don't understand it. I don't understand how we can say that God's personal and suddenly deny that Satan's not. The adversary is not an impersonal attribute that just symbolizes evil. He is a person in rebellion against God in a cosmic element. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time on the words that I just chose there, so if you're a theology nerd, you can come at me later. We'll break it apart. Just know I probably agree with you. Satan's personal. He's coming against us. We're a part of something much bigger than what we're able to see. What's the significance of that? As I look around and I see uh, struggles and strife, you know, I don't just attribute it to happenstance. I attribute it to something that I'm not capable of seeing. Paul's opened our eyes to this, and he's shown us that there's something bigger taking place. Not only that, though, he's shown us that this spiritual reality is enlightening to the assurance of hope that Christians have. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when the deliver, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. As Christians, the reality of seeing that something bigger is happening around me doesn't give me cause for fear. It doesn't make me afraid of the things that I don't understand. In fact, it gives me even more confidence in my all-power Savior. It pushes me to deeper reliance upon Him because I'm not able to see it. And this is what we should be reminded about if we want to grow in our Christian faith. The promise that God, that He, that Christ comes to deliver the kingdom of God after destroying every rule, every principality, every cosmic force that stands against it in this world. Revelation 20, 1 through 15 gives us this beautiful picture of what is to come. John writes in his vision that he saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a, th for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The promise that we have in these things that are bigger than our comprehension is that God's in control until the end of time. The reality that there is spiritual warfare, persecution of any kind, can cause our human nature to get retrospective. The, the truth is, and we see this in life all the time, as difficulties come against people, they generally feel shame or strife, and they don't want to share their difficulties or their burdens with people who care about them. Now, I'm not an expert on human nature, I'm not an expert on what causes people to do the things that they do. 
But I would suspect that part of it is they don't actually believe that the people that are around them care enough not only to hear their problems, but to help them. This, again, is what makes the church different. We've entered into a special kind of relationship for the most part that churches only see this kind of relationship in marriages. The kind of commitment that we make, it's called a covenant commitment. What makes the church different is, well, the same bonds that unite man and wife are the same bonds that unite church member to church member. You can't do anything that's going to make me stop loving you. I can't judge you harsh enough that will make you stop loving me. Because I'm committed to edifying one another. Supplication for all the saints that these needs would be met rather than getting introspective where we see when we look at the cosmic powers that Satan is up against that this is actually his scheme all along. That by dividing God's people, by causing them to be introspective, by causing them to rely on their own strength, they actually no longer are relying on the work of God evident by the entire counsel and the entire armor of God offered us but also not relying upon prayer and meeting the needs of one another. Ephesians 4, 2 and 6 gives us this picture of the bigger attack that we have, that which would be divided. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our Christian relationships are marked by unity. We must realize that it is necessary for us to have these one another relationships. If Satan can get us thinking that our Christian pilgrimage is simply an individual pilgrimage, as the Western church has generally begun to learn, we will be weakened significantly. I want you guys to understand this. It's incredibly important, not just for the kingdom of God, but for your personal spiritual maturity. If we neglect the fact that our Christian walk is a communal walk, our individual walk will suffer. This is a truth as revealed in Scripture. This is not just true for our individual lives as it relates to the church, but it's also true for the kingdom of God. If churches, and our definition of a church is a local called out assembly of believers, if churches do not take their edifying role in the life of every believer seriously, the kingdom of God will suffer everywhere else. We're a part of something bigger. Our measure of fellowship, when we look at how we participate, we're a part of something bigger than just this church. I don't think it's visible. I don't think we see it just yet. But God is at work even outside of the bounds of this church. This is why we associate 
with other churches so that we can cooperate in missions. This is why we see the supplication of every saint necessary for our prayer. Because if as individual Christians we are healthy, what will eventually come from that is that our church will be healthy. And if churches are healthy, our association with one another will be strengthened. Can you imagine the impact of missions that are led by churches that are healthy? I think it'll be phenomenal. I think God's doing exactly what He wants to do. Our measure of fellowship as we look at how we work with other churches isn't bound just by specifically each finer point of doctrine that we adhere to, but it's bound by the gospel that Christ has given us, the truth that we stand upon, the righteousness that we live, the readiness to seek out reconciliation. Guys, Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, it's the beginning of chapter 4, is pretty clear That our relationship with one another extends beyond even our close-knit church relationships. Because we're called into one faith, with one Lord, with one baptism. We're following this one measure. The gospel. Hear me. Our cooperation in missions is not based just on our denominational allegiance or anything like that. It's bound by the truth of the gospel. It's because the gospel is so important to be shared amongst the world that we are able to cooperate. To see that we are a part of something bigger than us, that the kingdom of God, that we should be praying for all saints, reminds us of what is taking place in this world and that spiritual attacks, even those that we see, they deserve prayer. They're worthy of our time. We're a part of something bigger. I'll remind you briefly of the benefits of prayer as we explored last week. And that is that by praying for all the saints, not only are we doing what God has told us to do, but we are constantly reminding ourselves of what Christians are up against, that we would have greater zeal, greater urgency, greater missional efforts as we live our lives. Even in the opposition of temptation in our life, if we saw and we were constantly reminded of what Christians around the world are being faced with, it would cause us, if we reminded ourselves of those things regularly, to be more zealous about maturing in the faith. We need to be reminded of the urgency that the gospel has. We need to get back to thinking that sharing the gospel is an urgent command given to us by God. Do you realize that 13 Christians are killed every day around the world because of their faith? Twelve churches and Christian buildings are attacked every day. Twelve Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. That's in addition to the 13 that are killed. These Christians need our prayers. Do we spend time praying for them? When we read Paul's command for praying or making supplication for all the saints, do we take that personally? It is personal. Because I guarantee you, these Christians are not hesitating to pray for the Christians all around the world. And maybe it's more urgent that they would pray for us. Because we aren't faced with imprisonment and false accusations and death and these kinds of sufferings. And while they have the hope of Revelation chapter 12 to look forward to, when they will reign with Christ and those who are persecuted and the beheaded will stand at His throne, they might be able to look forward to that. But the rest of the church has fallen asleep. 
Even now we look at the call that we have for the supplication of the saints and it seems burdensome. This is a command that Paul gives us with clarity because he thinks that it's the most important thing. Yeah, spend time figuring out what the breastplate of righteousness is and what it protects and how that works. Spend time with the helmet of salvation, how that's identifying you as a people. Spend time thinking about the belt that girds up all of these things and how it relates to righteousness. But in the plainest form that I can possibly say, Paul says, pray at all times. When we read the Bible, it's fun to jump and do these mental kind of gymnastics and break things apart. And I, as a former English major, I love breaking down language. It's a ton of fun. But the reality is our hermeneutic basis, that is our understanding of the Bible, simply means that the plain things are the main things. The things that the Bible is explicitly plain on are the things that we need to be paying the most attention to. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Making supplication for all the saints. That's the main thing of the entire armor of God. It's important that we should pay attention to that. Sometimes we think about persecution and what other Christians are facing around the world. And it's so easy to make it so far away from us that we're just completely removed that it doesn't come up in prayer. Doing research to prepare for this message, I was surprised to find that one of the top 50 most persecuted places for the Christian faith is Mexico. They made the top 50. That's our own back door. This isn't far away from us. And I would even contend, loved ones, and I don't think any of you would think that I'm totally insane for saying this. While the persecution in our American church certainly looks different, it's nonetheless there. When Paul says, pray or making all supplication for all the saints, this is personal. I'll run through these last four points faster than I did the first one. You've heard that before, right? Prayer is personal. We have to make it personal. Paul certainly does, as he says, and also for me. Make supplication for all the saints and also for me, Paul says, and he turns to the conclusion of his letter. When we pray for all the saints, we must be doing something that is personal to us. That's why I think it's so important when we support missions and why we, when we contribute to these things, that it's personal. That I'm not just praying for someone that I've never met serving and trying to plant churches in Zambia, Africa, but I'm praying for my friend and brother in Christ, Michael and Sharon Quillman. When I pray for my friend and sister who is planting churches in a closed country like Malaysia, and I won't say her name because this is being recorded, it's personal. I can see her face and I know what she's up against and I know what she's struggling with. I know what her strategy is. I know how she got a work visa. It's personal. When I pray for my friends who are 
serving in cross-cultural missions, it's personal. And when I ask for prayer for myself, it's personal because I don't think that I can do anything on my own. Paul, even Paul, believed this. He spends time showing us this. He shows us that we're a part of something bigger. He shows us that this is no different in him than it is in the rest of us. And this is where Paul begins his letter, actually, explaining that at one time we were children of wrath. That he needed prayer at one time, and it was thanks to prayer that the gospel had an effect on his life. He demonstrates his compassion for his contemporaries in Romans 10.1 when he writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and, and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they might be saved. He prays for his own people. I marvel at this, but the reality is I don't think it's possible for us to have a right enough understanding about how personal prayer is to be able to say that we pray enough. Maybe we do. Maybe we're sitting back and we're saying, I really think that I do pray pray enough. But as I study this passage, the conviction that I see, the conviction that I am being led to in responding to this is that we don't pray enough. It's personal. Even for strangers. Should I point out that when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he never met them? In Colossians 1.9, when he writes, Since the day that I heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. It's personal even as he prays for strangers. How much more personal should it be whenever we're praying for our friends, for our relationships, when we remember the context of chapter 5, that we're praying for our husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters, walking in love. The middle two verses of brethren we have met to worship. Brethren, see the poor sinners round you slumbering on the brink of woe. Death is coming, hell is moving, can you bear to let them go? See our fathers and our mothers and our children sinking down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them all about the Savior. Tell them that he will be found. Sisters, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Now, I noted that our hymnal removes these two verses. I don't know why. I think they're the best verses in the whole song. As I'm reminded of the urgency, how personal it is that I take what God has given me and that it means something to me. I don't understand the new missionary efforts where we're supposed to and I don't, maybe it's the culture influencing missions or whatever it is, but it seems like the trend in Christian faiths is we're just supposed to make friends with people and then eventually they'll come to know God on their own. But by no means should we make it so personal that it comes up in our conversation. Loved ones, that's backwards. Can you say with absolute honesty that if somebody met you tomorrow, it would not be long before it naturally came up that you are a follower of Christ. 
That doesn't mean that you're a part of Denver Street Baptist Church. That doesn't mean that, that you are Baptist. It means that God has control over your entire life. Is it personal enough to come up? Prayer, not only is it personal, it's providential. Now here's a word I think we get confused a lot. Providential. We, when we consider that we, have, that we are people of faith in a world that is existing in God's purpose, that God is here and that He's not left things to be left out of control, but that He's still sustaining everything, we look at how prayer is providential. Paul says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth. Sometimes we confuse sovereignty with providence, and so I'm going to try to make a distinction between the two. Providence isn't a word that's really found in the Bible, so I can't give you a biblical definition of it, but it's certainly found in what the Bible is teaching us. Biblically, I believe what providence is, is an understanding of what's taking place in our world. Sovereignty would be God's right and power to do what He decides. That's where sovereignty ends. God's the creator of the world. He's all-powerful, which means that he can do what he wants, and he has a power to do what he wants. Providence is saying that not only does he have this power, but I also understand God's nature, that he is good, that he is loving, that he is kind, that he's revealing, that he wants to show himself to people, that his will is that the world would come to know him. And so providence is that he is accomplishing this through sovereign means. That means that as we speak or we have friendships or relationships or we go to work and we speak with loved ones and this and that, all these things that are personal, it's also providential whenever we pray that God would give us the words of our mouth. Paul demonstrates this for us as he asks the Ephesians to pray for all the saints and also for him, that he might be able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. There's no amount of creative rhetoric, allegory, cunning that will ever reveal the mystery that, of the gospel of Christ. It will be God. Perhaps what holds us up is we still try to rely on ourselves instead of letting God actually work through us. The complete surrender necessary to submit to the providence of God happens with or without us. But are we purposeful in pursuing it? This is the third P. Prayer is personal, it's providential, and it's also purposeful. Paul doesn't ask for this without a purpose, but he says that he wants to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He has a purpose in asking for this. He wants those who are around him to hear the gospel with clarity that is not possible through his own means. There is purpose in prayer. God has a purpose, and we should too. After all, praying aligns our will with God's, that we might be able to honor Him and do things as He instructs us to do, that I may declare the gospel boldly, Paul says. We must speak when there is no one asking, because we do have a purpose. The sweetness of the gospel needs to live on our lips. And finally, prayer is prescriptive. I'm always happy when I get to talk about how we interpret the Bible. And I've given you one of the most important pieces of biblical hermeneutics that you could possibly ever have this morning. I said the main things are the plain things. That's a good one. Stick that in. That's a, that's a good one. 
Here's another one. When we read things in the Bible, we have to determine, are they prescriptive or descriptive? If you read Judges and you think you're supposed to live like those people, you miss the point. There are some things in the Bible that are simply descriptive of what's happening. It just describes things. And the book of Judges is a great example of that because it's awful people doing awful things. When I look at Paul and what he is writing in Ephesians chapter 6, when he says, pray for all the saints, making supplication for them, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I want you to pay attention. He says, as I ought to speak. This isn't something that he wants to do. This isn't something that he could do. This isn't something that he wants to try to do. This is what he do do because he ought to. This is prescriptive. I believe Yoda said it best. Do or do not. There is no try. Some of you are looking at me like I've gone crazy. We've spent time over the past couple of months talking about the importance of prayer. You all extended a great amount of grace to me, and I can't help but realize that there are less faces here this morning. Perhaps some of you didn't give me that grace and ran off, and that's all right, too. I'll forgive you later. But I really nerded out as we looked at the importance of prayer in the history of the church. I guess it would have been six or so weeks ago. Prayer has always been the strength of the church throughout every century, every era, every generation. It was those who were committed to prayer that saw the most results in their fruitfulness as a church and also in their evangelistic efforts. There is no denying from a biblical perspective, a historical perspective, that prayer matters. And as I read this, and I'm convicted of that, I think many of you have started to pick up that I think prayer is pretty important. And I think you've even started to pick up that prayer is important. And still, I don't think I pray enough. And I don't think you pray enough. That's that judgment. I'm judging you. And this is my human wisdom. I might be wrong, but I wonder why it is that people neglect prayer as often as they do. I think we've made it something that it's not. Making supplication for all the saints and also for me, prayer is constantly relying upon God in every moment of our lives. Why do we neglect prayer? Because we say we don't know how to pray. You would have enjoyed our Sunday school lesson this morning. Prayer is no different than learning how to swim. How did you learn how to swim? Did you read a book about learning how to swim? And you said, okay, I've got to make sure my lungs stay inflated and I've got to cut my hands and I've got to get in the water. And then, and then you went out and you tried to practice it. I think my uncle just threw me into the lake. It was do or die. I was either going to sink or I was going to fall. How do you learn how to ride a bike? Maybe some of you had training wheels. You know how Brother Dwayne teaches his children to ride a bike? He pushes them down a hill apparently. Way to go, Brother Dwayne. It was do or die. In Bryce's words, he said, I'm either going to hit that tree or I'm going to learn how to ride this bike. 
Why do you think prayer is any different? Do or do not. There is no try. Prayer is seeking God's will, seeking that we would be aligned with God's will, that He would meet our needs and that we would rely upon Him, that as we pray for supplication, that we would trust that He does give us everything that we need. And so we're not going to sit around and make excuses. God, you haven't given me a friendship. You haven't given me someone to share my faith with. You haven't, God, you haven't given me enough intellectual skill and know-how to be able to read your Bible on my own. So I guess that's not a command given to me. That's just descriptive of what some people should do. Prayer is prescriptive. When I pray for supplication that God would meet the needs of every saint, I also know that He's willing to do that because He promises to do that because it's His providence that's actually sustaining all things. Because He's an Almighty God, not only with the power and the ability to do anything and everything that He wants, but He's good and He does it. Prayer is not that complicated, but it's essential to everything. It's not a last resort. It is the strength of the church. It's personal as we rely upon God. As we look at the armor of God that we've taken up, it's personal because we see that our support and ministry comes from Him and it comes from saints who are praying for us and our relationship with other people. It's providential because God's taking care of us. It's purposeful because we have a purpose to be here and it's prescriptive because we have no choice. If we want to be obedient to God, We must be in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and the truth that it gives us, the way that you have disclosed to us and given us understanding of who we are before you and how we should rely upon your spirit as you give us direction in life. God, I pray that you would also give us an understanding to know how to apply this message to our lives. As we prepare to stand and sing, God, I ask that you would guide us, that we would respond in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. Stand with us.